Welcome back to the Caucasity. I'm Faiza. And I'm Nicole. Welcome, welcome, everyone. And we are going to get started with our usual um, check-in question. Um, Yeah, so my question is, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is really a question, Um, but the Spotify wrapped thing came out, I think it was, it was um, yesterday, so that was December 1st, so it came out December 1st, um, and a lot of people were just posting on their Instagram stories or Snapchat stories or whatever, and I finally looked at mine today, um, and I was like, oh, let me see what my top artists are, um, so yeah, I'm just curious, Nicole, like, what your top artist slash top podcasts are, because I know you're a huge podcast lover. Yeah, so for podcasts, I'll like say my top two, my favorite murder, 20 out of 10 recommend. And then the Oprah Winfrey Super Soul Sundays, I think super, yeah. Um, she interviews like really cool people and it's like really uplifting and inspiring. And it's freaking Oprah, like who doesn't love Oprah? That is fair. Yeah. I'll recommend those two. My favorite murder. Um, Nicole talks about my favorite murder literally all the time. So it's definitely not surprising. Yeah. I'm a big true crime type gal and I just I don't know like I definitely see myself being like a Karen well, her, her name's actually Karen she's not a Karen okay she her name is Karen is Karen. <laughs> Karen in Georgia they're awesome they're just like California girls they talk like I do they say like and they like joke about being valley girls and I really resonate with that um but they're super funny and um I think just take a topic that's very like dark and and uh make it funny so I like that yeah. um and for my top music <laughs> okay this is gonna expose like my nerdiness and like my weirdness and that's hey, okay that is okay um, we embrace that here no, I don't like Taylor Swift that much and I never really have but I liked her song the man because I thought it was mm-hmm. like a catchy t- and I don't really listen to a lot of music. I mean, I listen to music, but like not really. Like this year just was my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's ranked as my number one top artist, and her song "The Man" is ranked as my number one <laughs> top. song. Um, and I have really a lot of fundamental issues with Taylor Swift. I feel like I don't yeah. know why. And then after that, it's Hamilton, which um, I've listened to Hamilton since I was, I think, like a junior or sophomore in high school. Since yeah. like first, so mm-hmm. I'm like diehard fan. Um, so like it goes like literally original Broadway cast for Hamilton, then it goes Lynn Manuel Miranda, then it goes Harry Styles, then it goes uh Leslie Odom Jr., which is another person from Hamilton. From Hamilton, so, yeah. Oh um, my top songs are The Man by Taylor Swift, Into the Unknown. I love love Frozen. Frozen's literally like one of my favorite Disney movies. It's exposing my I love Disney music and I listen to it like more than probably like normal music. I don't know. Um yeah, I love Elsa. Elsa's me. I, I really resonate a lot with Elsa. Um and then Wait a Minute, which is by Willow. I like that song. Oh, I like um, that song too. Yeah. Uh and then it's uh please, please let me get what I want by the Smiths. I love the Smiths. My dad like definitely got me onto that. And then when I'm older from Frozen again. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Frozen. 
So let's expose Nicole and all her weird, quirky. Yes. Okay. That's hey, I mean, I feel like, I mean, music and just like what you listen to, it just like gives a lot into the personality. So I feel like if you haven't really gotten a sense of her personality so far, I think this definitely will. Um, I'm a childish queen. What can I say? <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> what about you, Faza? What's on your okay. Spotify rap? What is on my Spotify wrapped? So my top, I'll start with my genre. Um, and I think it'll, it'll explain a lot. So my top genre, they call it alternative R&B. Um, I mean, I'm a huge, huge R&B fan. Um, as, and I think maybe alternative R&B might have to do with just like a lot of like now more like current R&B artists that are coming out. So I don't know if you've heard of, you know, like feel like Kehlani and um, her and Summer Walker um, and then there are countless others that I really can't think off the top of my head um, but yeah I definitely love listening to them and yeah that's really essentially just like all I listen to I as much as I you know like to say like oh like I like you know different genres and I listen to whatever I have a very very specific music taste so yeah so my top hmm that song she came out honey yeah honey i like that song oh that song is so lovely it just gave me such hard feelings you keep going sorry i just i just like popped in my brain that i really like that song which yeah. i listened to a bunch of i don't know but, why they know taylor swift <laughs> okay so my top five artists are snow allegra so she is iranian um and she's from sweden so she's an iranian swedish woman um, and I think she currently lives in LA right now and she, yeah, she's in the, the sphere of R&B and her voice is so beautiful. Um, so I absolutely love her. My second artist is Levin Cali. So he is also um, in this genre. And my third artist is Mac Ayers. So he's, I think his most famous or most popular song is probably Easy if you ever look him up. Um, he's super yeah he just like has the vibes and I really enjoy just like his instrumentals I saw him live back in October last year and it was just like such a I just love listening to their music live too um, and then my fourth artist is Tyler the creator um, I I think since last year like my the album I love to listen to is Igor um, from him I also saw him live and then my fifth artist is Kaylani <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I try to, try to go to concerts, you know. <laughs> before COVID. Before COVID. Uh, take me back. Take me back. Okay, so my top songs. Um, so my first song is Health Food by Berhana. He's also in this, in this genre. So Health Food has like some funky vibes. And I also do like, you know, funk, funky music. Um, and then I might just come, I don't know, my parents listen to like a lot of like 70s music. My dad listened to a lot of, I, th I think maybe like some 70s funk or whatever, um, 70s and 80s. So that's, I think, where I get it from. My second song is Experience by v Victoria Monet featuring um, Khalid. Third song is Sweet Time mm -hmm. by Ravina. So Ravina is this like super sweet um, singer. She is uh, South Asian, I believe. Um, I love her. I just love the sound of her voice, it's like super sweet. And then my fourth song is um, Effin' Around by um, uh, Lil, uh, Lil Phony People um, featuring Megan Thee Stallion. Uh, and then my fifth song is Whoa. Whoa. 
by Snow Allegra. So yeah, so it's a little bit of my Spotify wrapped. Um, kind of want to get in on this trend, I guess, of sharing the music that we listen to. Yeah, um, I promise I listen to cool people music sometimes. So- I think Fiza definitely has them. Like I honestly just listen to all my sister's playlists. She has, mm. she's like, she's a dancer, so like variety and then I also listen to like a lot of reggaeton so if y'all ever want to talk about that oh I see I um, see I see now yeah um, now that I'm in I listen to a little more but mm-hmm. yeah um, okay so this week's episode is about um let's see how do I do you know how to word this eloquently I don't know how to word this eloquently let me let me go by saying okay so you're gonna if we if we say what it's about you're gonna wonder like how does this connect so we've been talking about or especially last episode we talked about like eugenics and forced sterilization and just like the violence done upon you know black women and other women of color and so I think this episode or what we're gonna talk about um is gonna connect really well with that just like violence upon black bodies um we're just gonna talk about um you know something that has been talked about, especially through Black Lives Matter um, and the movement for Black Lives and, and, you know, other movements for racial justice. So if you can, you know, if that doesn't give you enough, we're talking about police brutality or police violence, state-sanctioned violence or whatever you want to call it. There's so many names for it. Um, and specifically, this is going to, we're going to be focusing on, you know, police violence against Black women. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're just like not talked about enough um, in the media, nope. or they're you know the, the you know black women victims aren't just shown enough. Their stories aren't being you know told and aren't being heard. So we just want to shed some light on that. Um, and yeah, this is definitely not related to this is not reproductive itself, reproductive health and reproductive rights itself, but just yeah connects to that just like destruction of you know black bodies that has been um throughout the history of the united states yeah and like i think we wanted to like when we were kind of formulating this podcast it was like an an issue that kind of came up um pretty consistently in our discussions and i think it's just something we have to address because i think like fiza said in the media like black women who um are you know killed in the street due to police brutality aren't you know really shown in the same ways as black men are and i think that's something that really ties into reproductive health and like intersectionality really nicely and i think it's something that also is like a very like hot button issue especially with um brianna taylor and a lot of other you know names that are coming to light now with all the black lives matter um you know protests and um things like that so um yeah, I just think it's a really good topic to touch on. I think FISA really tied it in nicely there. Um, I think, you know, violence takes on many forms. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of leads us into our frameworks for this week. Um, I'll be referring back to White Rage for mine, um, talking about kind of, so policing isn't, you know, a new thing. <laughs> um, no. So policing in the United States really took form with um, slave catchers and, you know, with the civil rights, um, civil rights. Wow. Wow. Civil war. Yeah. Good morning. Okay. Um, What century are we in today? Um, uh, Really after, you know, um, 
really leading up to the Civil War, there were many acts. There was the Fugitive Slave Act, which required mm-hmm. slaves to be returned to their owners um, if caught. Um, so this led to this like slave patrol being um, created to essentially, you know, catch these slaves, which kind of starts, you know, leads into, there's this great article that, you know, uh, it's called from slave patrol to stormtroopers, America's police have an ugly history. So um, I think kind of, and then with that, you know, that role kind of transitioned to like into the reconstruction era with um, arresting black folks um, and putting them into the uh, um, criminal justice system, I don't mm-hmm. know, criminal justice or the you know, mass incarceration, things like that, um, using mm-hmm. their labor that way. Um, things like that. So it kind of has now evolved into what we see as police today. And yeah. I think it had definitely had very strong white supremacist and, you know, racist undertones to it. And I think it's really important to understand how white rage connects to that because it is l- quite literally the violence against um, Black folks um, that um, is literally legalized through the use of policing and through the yeah. use of um enforcing like institutions like slavery and then mass incarceration and things mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the framework we'll be looking at um, with this. And I think it's important to understand that. Um, I think this is why like the police system isn't just a few bad apples. Um, it's really the whole system as a whole because it's literally founded on white supremacy, I think. Right. And I think yeah. that's what caused whole system to be um extremely racist and problematic um so yeah so i think it's important to understand that and definitely um i would really recommend this article does a really good job of giving a really detailed overview of how this evolution takes place but yeah really everything comes back goes back to slavery so (laughs) this is what it really does so if you're saying like oh slavery is in the past like it's um it's not um, the legacy is still here. Also, it was written in the 13th Amendment to our Constitution that slavery um, is, you know, abolished, except for cases of, you know, imprisonment, right? So it then then it's like, oh, is it counted as a cruel and unusual punishment? No, it's not, because it's it's legalized. So this legacy of slavery and just like that, um, the 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 need for actually not even need, but just like this desire and, you know, using the power to, um, you know, use folks for, you know, labor, um, which is where, you know, race, a racist capitalist uh, system has come from, um, that it has still exists today. So you can't really say that it doesn't, it's, it's all in the past because its effects is still very current and very real. Um, yeah. And so for, yeah. Sorry, we are not in a post-racial era. That is a myth. Just because we had a black president doesn't mean racism is done. Like, it's done. Just, yeah. Nope. Not yeah. at all. No. <laughs> Thanks for that, Nicole. Yes, that's very important. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and another um, kind of framework or just kind of lens that we are um, going to use um, in this episode is whiteness as property. So this is an article written by Cheryl Harris, um, and she is like, you know, one of the, you could consider her as like one of the OG, like critical race theorists, um, and she's this critical, um, she like kind of uses critical race theory as, you know, a base for this foundation of talking about whiteness as property, and so essentially, you know, in her article, 
Jana talks about how, you know, the construction of whiteness was, um, you know, being done and kind of manifested and how um, property was obtained. And so, of course, property is obtained illegally, um, you know, was stolen, the land was stolen from natives um, in this country. So that is that history, but also like who was considered property. Um, Black folks were considered property when they were enslaved. Um, so just kind of like looking at that and conceptualizing like how, you know, instances of property and just our emphasis in property in general in this country um, has, you know, formed whiteness and constructed whiteness. Um, and so there's like a little um, section in our article. It's, it's pretty dense. So, you know, if you were to read it, um, definitely like, you know, take it a little bit at a time. Um, but really um, what uh, Cheryl Harris is saying, and I quote here, um, she says that the construction of white identity and the ideology of racial hierarchy also were intimately tied to the evolution and expansion of the system of chattel slavery and that and end quote. So like from chattel slavery and, you know, from essentially, you know, owning a, a group of people, um, you know, and using them as property and using them for labor, um, it really uh, created um, this kind of um, racial hierarchy. And so of course the, the hierarchy is that, you know, white people are at the top and black people are at the bottom. And so because black folks are at the bottom and, and you base things off of whiteness, black folks are obviously not white, they're black, they're the opposite of white. Um, they are, you know, labeled as like racial others. Um, and so this is kind of what we want to focus on this racial otherness. Um, because they are, you know, because black folks were other, it was, you know, justified that they could be enslaved and that just continued the whole system of cattle slavery for as long as it did. Um, but also like now you still see racial otherness, you still see this racial hierarchy, even though it's a little harder now because, you know, a lot of, you know, racism and these policies are very covert and very subtle and insidious. It's, it still has an effect on, you know, why black folks are still targeted by the police or why black folks are still, um, you know, there's still violence being done on black folks is because it's been justified for so long that, you know, it still continues to happen. So this goes back to, you know, this, this legacy of, of slavery um, because you've had dehumanized um, a whole, you know, group of people for hundreds of years, um, that is still going to continue, even though they have been, you know, free from slavery or they have received so many civil rights and other rights. Um, their human rights have not still been recognized. And that's what um, Black folks have been fighting for. You know, Black folks and their allies have been fighting for um, and really put in the mm -hmm. forefront, especially, you know, right now, as we've seen. Um, it was really just important to consider that, you know, with racial otherness. Black folks have just been constantly subordinated and subjugated, and it's um, and that just kind of still exists today. And you know the little nuanced ways of, of our society, if it's not you know very um, overtly said and stated. Right. No. Totally. Um, yeah, I think slavery's impact and um, has really had a very long-lasting impact on this country mm -hmm. and. For sure. Really just explains a lot of the things we're seeing today. Um, but yeah, so I think now we're going to transition it into our case studies. Mm -hmm. Woo. So Fize is going to go first. I feel like this week we have like slightly shorter ones, but, um, uh, you know, I think we're going to 
you know, jump on it. I think Fiza is yeah. really happy for hers and I'm really happy for you guys to hear from it. So yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is short because I feel like we don't need to go through like too much history because I mean, this, this issue has, you know, really emerged. I mean, it has emerged in the sense of like, you know, in so many more people's consciousness, especially for white folks. And so I feel yeah. like, you know, it's hard to not look at the news and like not understand what's happening. Like these, you know, black people are falling victim to police violence. Like, you know, it could be like every single day, like you just hear on the news, you turn it on and there's just like another victim. Um, yeah. So I just kind of want to uh, start off with just mentioning some experiences and examples of, of police violence or state sanctioned violence against black women. Um, so my mm -hmm. first uh, person is Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, so she was a civil rights activist in the civil rights movement. Um, and this really goes to show that like whatever is happening right now is just has not come out of the blue, right? This is definitely right. a long history as, as we've been talking about. And so uh, for Fannie Lou Hamer, um, so she, um, so this was in 1963 in the month of June. So she was returning from a voter registration workshop in South Carolina. And so they were arrested in Winona, Mississippi. So they were arrested because they were traveling in the white section of a bus. And so they received threats from the driver and the driver was like, I'm gonna like, call the police. Um, and so when the, when the bus arrived at the next stop, um, like, so when they, when they arrived at the next stop, like these activists also sat at like the white only, you know, lunch counter in the terminal when they were waiting. And so the police came and the police chief was like, oh, you have to go to the side for, you know, colored folks. Um, and so, you know, one of the activists tried to write down the license plate of the police, right? They were, of course, trying to defend themselves, but, um, you know, they were um, arrested. And so they were arrested and Fanny and Hamer was, you know, sent to jail. Um, mm -hmm. And so in jail, Hamer experienced um, abuse, right? So this is probably going to be a little violent, so a little, a little trigger warning here. Um, but when she was in jail, um, so three white men came to her cell. And so um, one of the men were like a state, a state highway patrolman, and he asked um, her where she was from. And so she told her, so she told him where she, she was from. And so they were like, oh, we're gonna go check this. Um, and, you know, he made a threat saying like, oh, we are going to wish we are going to make you wish you was dead. That That is already just like, so like, like, oh my God, like how can someone say that? But of course this is at the time with like um, Jim right. Trump, right? So, you know, white people were able to say whatever they want to say. Um, and so what is even more just like horrific and just so cruel was that like these white officers forced to black prisoners to beat up, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, like literally beat her up with like some some weaponers. They said loaded blackjacks. So this was like super super violent, and she was literally like almost killed. Um, but I mean, unfortunately, she regained consciousness. Um, but like she overheard an officer say like, oh, like because you know they thought that they were dead. It's like oh, we can just like dump the body in the river or something, and no one would be able to find find them. And like this stuff happens, right? If you are you sometimes you hear hear cases of like really, you know, black, black folks dying on unusual circumstances, like whether they were, you know, seen hanging from trees or whether they were found in some river um, and be like, mm -hmm. were they lynched, right? And like, it couldn't necessarily be a suicide because it's like so, so unusual, right? Like, 
depending on who, yeah. who, right, who you're surrounded by and like also like what kind of injuries you sustained. Like right. it, it's definitely, it's definitely something that's racially motivated. And so this is, this happened in the sixties and this is happening right now. So that, right. So you kind of see these patterns. Um, and so, you know, sadly, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, she never rec fully recovered from the attacks. She lost when she lost vision in one of her eyes. She suffered permanent kidney damage, which contributed to her death in 1977. So she was 59 when she died. Um, so she tried to file a lawsuit against the, the um, police department, but of course it was acquitted. Um, you know, police were able to get away with, you know, whatever they did back then, they are still able to get away with it now. So, um, so it was so sad, you know, this happened to um, Fannie Lou Hamer and she was of course targeted because she was a prominent um, civil rights activists. Um, but, you know, these next two examples are just, you know, of um, women that were just, they were just, you know, regular women. They weren't necessarily um, like super vocal in terms of like act, like activism and movements and stuff like that. They weren't, um, I guess in a sense, like branded like Fannie Lou Hamer was because um, a lot of act, civil rights activists were and then they were targeted and, and then they were assassinated, right? Um, yeah. So, my next example is Leilene Polanco. So she is an Afro-Latina trans woman who um, died at Rikers Island when she was in jail. So she was arrested on some certain charges um, and she died in June, 2019. So she suffered from a seizure. She had histories of seizures. So I think, she, I believe she had epilepsy. So she mm -hmm. was in solitary confinement. And so what, um, so she was in there and what the correction officers are supposed to do is that they're supposed to like go around and like patrol and like check on folks, um, I think in like 15, 20 minute intervals. But what happened right. with um, Polanco was that she, you know, passed away. She was just left in there and the correction officers like didn't come by and like see until maybe like 40, 50 minutes until after she passed away. So um, this was definitely, you know, negligence, right? Like they mm. knew that she had a history of seizures, right? of course, when you intake folks, they knew they had a history and yet like they didn't check on her specifically knowing that this could happen. They didn't check on her until later. They just like left her there. Um, mm -hmm. So this, you know, this is so important in so many cases, like one, because it, you know, signifies just like the negligence from the corrections officers and also in general, of, like the jail and just like the system right, the criminal justice system in general right. for um, women of color, but also because she was a trans woman, she is, she was subjected to just like more discrimination and mistreatment. Um, I think mm. she was put in solitary because um, they like- Yeah, like solitary. Right? Like it's, I was like- Yeah. Like it's solitary, first of all, is like a horrible place to be and it's like torture essentially. Yeah. Um, but so she was put in there, I think, because, um, like, I don't know, I think in my understanding, like they're, they don't know where to put trans people, right? Like, they're like, oh, should we put them in a male prison or like a, you know, with the, you know, female population and stuff like that. So she wasn't right. a female population, but she was just still separated from the general population. Um, and I think that just has to do with like, like her being trans, like her gender identity and like folks just not knowing what to do essentially not knowing what to do with her. Um, also just like, 
you know, was a reason why she was just put into solitary, which is like absolutely horrible. Like you shouldn't, you know, separate, you know, folks like that. Um, she's she's a woman, right? Oh. Trans women are women. Um, yeah. So I think it just goes back to that. Um, just kind of understanding and you know that transphobia, right? Of just like, oh, they're not totally. like real women or whatever. Um, which is just like so horrible to hear. And so I think her family filed um, a wrongful uh, death lawsuit with the with the city. I think they were mm-hmm. able to get a settlement. But like the fact that like you know what what just like really frustrates frustrates me and like angers me is that like you know they have to file a wrongful death suit um, and just get like money and you know that's called justice it's like definitely not called justice right because I feel like there should def- uh, there should be you know um, some type of um, accountability held for a lot of the officers especially the officers weren't really found with like any faults to do with her death even though they they didn't they weren't there to check in on her they were like oh yeah it's not their fault essentially um, so that's just like so horrible to hear and that is just such a grave injustice for um, Blanco. Um, and also mm-hmm. my last example is Brianna Taylor, of course. And I feel like, um, you know, I feel like, you know, most folks, especially I hopefully in the audience would know like, you know, what her case is, like who she was. Um, because I think it's just been so highly publicized about like, just like, you know, what happened with her, the police coming in and playing clothes with a no knock warrant and then just literally shooting into her apartment and then bullets hitting her. I don't know if a lot of folks know this, but, you know, she was hit with so many bullets. She was still alive after a certain point, um, and yet she received no medical attention. So even that, too, like, that is just, um, to me, like, I only found that out, like, not, like, maybe a few months ago. Um, I didn't know that that was a part oh, of it. Yeah, right? So I didn't people, know. Like, really people, talking. Yeah, right? So, like, people don't even talk about that, too, like, she was shot at, but she was, she could have had, you know, the chance to survive if she received the proper medical attention, but, like, she just, she, she was left to die there, too, um, and so I feel like, um, with Brown and Taylor, like, it, it's good that, um, there is, like, a lot of publicity and just, like, a lot of people talking about her case and really fighting for it, because really, it was just, like, it was so, um, like, horrible, like, what happened, like, with the no-not, like, why are there no-not warrants or whatever, it was the wrong house, they already, after, like, you already arrested another suspect in connection with that, so why they even go there in the first place, there are just so many questions surrounding that, um, uh, but even, the, like, even though Brianna Taylor is being, you know, recognized and her case is being put at the forefront, so many black women, um, black women and girls are not um, put in the forefront. They're like not talked about. And then that's just really like what I kind of want to bring forward. Just like how, you know, the media puts so much attention on black men and the deaths. Though um, I've been, I was reading and, and sure you could say that black men are just killed, like unarmed black men are killed at a higher rate than, you know, unarmed black women. Um, by the police but even still like black women are still victims right they're still being murdered there's just you know still you know there's violence being done to them um and yet they're just not talked about at all um I just don't really I haven't really heard any cases about black women in the past like five years but I've heard you know so many um black men that were killed and so um if you if you know the audience's time I suggest watching um Kimberly Crenshaw's um TED talk on you know the urgency of intersectionality, um, because in the beginning she does this activity with the audience where she was like, "Well, stand up if you know 
the names of these these men or these boys and then she goes in and says oh stand up if you know the names of these women and girls and not a lot of people stood up for for the um women and girls and so that really just shows that there's a need to kind of bring forth intersectionality and bring forth kind of that understanding and that framework to know that black women are also victims but also it's a unique like it's so many unique cases right the, the way that they experience violence is different than black men it's not because like yeah. even though they're black like it's, it's still different right because there's a gendered aspect to it um totally. so there um is with kimberly crimshaw and um what she founded the african-american policy forum in 1996 i believe um and so in in you know, in her organization, she started the hashtag Say Her Name campaign. And so this is a campaign that is bringing forth the stories of these, you know, Black women and Black girls that have fallen victim to police violence. Um, and really just like, you know, bringing that awareness to this issue. Um, so that's just really the work that she does. Um, and also, you know, she is, um, you know, advocating for you know various policies and such to you know um that incorporates intersectionality so that there is you know racial justice and you know gender justice and gender equity um when you are thinking mm-hmm. about um police reform but also when you're thinking about you know defunding the police and, and all of that stuff yeah. and how you know these these victims get justice um so i think I just wanted to put out this, you know, campaign and forward and, you know, you could just, you know, do your own research on it later. Um, that was just kind of like a little brief synopsis about it. Um, you know, if you look it up, you know, please consider, you know, supporting um, the campaign and supporting Kimberly Crenshaw's um, organization in general. Um, I think that's really good, you know, action item. You can support, you know, you can be directly involved with, you know, um, you know, advocating for certain policies and such, you know, calling your legislators and things like that. Um, but you can also be involved by donating, you can donate to support. Giving Tuesday was just yesterday, um, but you uh, still shouldn't stop you from donating, especially for folks who have the means. Um, yeah. But also just like spread, you can spread on social media, you know, um, if you follow them on Instagram, if you follow them on Twitter, just like spread information and, you know, share their their story and just share what they're doing on social media too, to raise more awareness to folks um, that might not be aware um, of this issue. And just another kind of thing that the hashtag Serenade campaign does is they have a mother's network. Um, and mm-hmm. so this is very interesting in that um, the mother's network really also centers, you know, this the stories of the mothers, um, but also, you know, it could be other relatives like sisters as well, you know, sisters and brothers and such. Um, and, and, you know, how police violence has affected them and how, you know, the death of their children has affected them. Um, and so, you know, they do come together. They also organize, you know, they um, have planning sessions, they organize vigils, um, you know, they march together um, in, you know, various marches. Um, and they, you know, lobby for police reform. Um, And so they do all of this work, um, you know, to really um, secure justice for their children, um, for their, for their daughters, right. Um, And I think that's, that's especially like super powerful too, because if, you know, you can't get justice through the criminal justice system, you know, you, you essentially have to 
do it for yourself. Um, yeah, so I think this really just ties into what Nicole is going to talk about, just like about the effect of police violence on, um, you know, the the surviving family of these victims. Yeah, so um, kind of in talking about this topic, I've always like wondered, you know, in like losing a son or daughter in this way, like how does this impact a family and how does this impact the people that are left behind? Because they are victims too. Like they, yeah. they're victims of this um, atrocity that's been committed and there's really no closure on a lot of cases um and a lot of you know the mothers like Faiza was saying with that mother's network it's like I feel like they're the ones that are now like organizing and demanding change because they've felt like the immense pain that police brutality um kind of you know gives out you know yeah um so um, I'll be focusing on Tamir Rice um, and his mother. Um, his mother's name is uh, Samira Rice. Um, she, um, Tamir Rice, just to give some background, uh, was a boy. He was 12 years old and he was shot and killed by the police in Cleveland, Ohio, um, after playing with a fake toy gun and it was called in. Mm-hmm. Um all decided that was worthy of a 911 call but you know um so um after the aftermath of the shooting um really kind of for Tamir's family um uh Shamira um Tamira like really decided that um because like so as he was getting shot uh is it Tajay, um, yeah. Tajay, um, his sister like ran to uh, Tamir's body and started screaming um, that like that's my brother and like obviously the cop handcuffed her and put her in the backseat of the police car because she would not calm down um, in quotation marks I should say. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so essentially um he was brought to the hospital but you know died um within the next day um yeah so um so after being shot in 2014 yes 2014 um samira has done a lot of work samira's done a lot of work in um bringing a lot of awareness to what happened to tamir um, she worked on a music video for Shooting Without Bullets. It's a nonprofit. Um, she um, also started work. It's called, hold on, let me find the name. Sorry. Um, she um, bought a rundown building in like focusing on kids in the community and renamed it the Tamir Rice Cultural Center um and she wanted to offer civics classes so people know their rights um and use it as a as a space to talk um she talks a lot about that um she'll tell local kids if the police officer asks your name you give them your name you have to identify and tell them you don't have to speak to them unless a lawyer is present so i think oftentimes younger folks um i think especially you know black folks um 
don't know their rights. And I think it's really important that they do know their rights. Um, yeah. Though often a gun is pulled very prematurely in an altercation and that's how police brutality happens. I don't know why that's the default to reach for a gun and shoot at somebody, but that is just the default. And I don't know why, but obviously there's, you know, other things going on there, but yeah. Um, anyway, so she wants to do a lot of uh, work around that. Um, and at the park where Tamir was shot, um, she created a memor- memorial for her son. Um, and she said, if he had been white, I believe it could have turned out a different type of way. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm sure of it. I think about that all the time. Every time I hear about somebody getting killed by a police or even community violence, it tears, it tears on me. It weighs on me because I'm thinking that Tamir could have, should have been enough. That uh, should have been enough. Why are people still dying after my son um, by the police? Um, and I think that kind of also in this article, it's really interesting, um, talks about, you know, his siblings um, who are black women talk a lot about, you know, a lot of them are having children now. And, you know, Tamir's face is all over the news, it's all over media, mm-hmm. his name's everywhere. And it's, you know, how do I, how they're kind of express their concerns in um, how, like, um, how they'll pass on kind of this knowledge, um, this injustice and like racial, um, how she'll talk about injustice, race and inequality um, and how kind of that will, that information will be passed down to their children. Cause like, obviously, you know, their uncle was like brutally killed and by the police and like, how do you know what I mean? Like, how do you yeah. really teach them in a way that's effective but it's also very personal. Mm-hmm. So I think in this, art, this article, it really just shows that a lot of the black women who are kind of impacted by police violence um by the loss of a family member and how in many cases I think Tamir's um, mom isn't the only mom that's done this I think there's been many moms I think I mean the fact that there's a whole network to me says but enough is enough and I feel like um Samara's point um about Samara's point about um, like how like Tamir should have just been the last one and he's and he's not is like very like powerful and I think it just shows that um, this issue needs to be addressed I mean it's boys being killed like a 12 year old should not be shot in the street um, period um, so yeah so I think I just wanted to bring that to that to, to attention because I think oftentimes we often forget um, that I think in the media, like a lot of these names and faces get thrown out there, but we often forget that they were people too. And they had people that loved and cared for them. And those people, you know, have to live with this trauma and this like, um, this really like sudden thing that's happened to them and someone's life was taken away from them in a mm-hmm. very um, inequitable and in terrible way. And on top of that, um, the police officer that shot and killed Tamir Rice got, um, rehired in another city in Ohio so I think that like I couldn't imagine receiving that type of news um that like one wasn't enough for him to be arrested and put in jail for a long time no in fact he gets to keep doing his job even though he killed a 12 year old boy and now he can't live his life and do the things he wanted to do so anyway so I thought my perspective in this is that Black women are incredibly powerful and they have this amazing ability to organize and it's very evident in this. And 
Um, I think I just wanted to close this out um, by saying a quote from Tamir's mom saying, I wasn't no activist, she says. None of these families are. All of them have been forced to take on a job they wouldn't mm-hmm. wish upon anyone else. Yeah. So, and I think that's something that's really powerful to understand. Um, these people, I think these communities um, have a lot of hurt and pain, but I think it's leaders that who, who are even at the core of this pain who need to, you know, who are the ones stepping up and saying enough is enough, which I think is so powerful. But yeah, that was my case study for this week. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I think, you know, it's obviously a terrible situation, but, you know, I think, you know, good is coming from it. And I hope mm-hmm. that this, you know, momentum keeps going, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement this year. And I really hope, you know, with this current administration coming in and hopefully, you know, things get better, but, you know, <laughs> you know, a girl can dream. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, as much as I want to hope too, like every time I just like see the news, like it just breaks my heart even more. And, and I don't know, like, I know there's like so much work that's being done, but also, you know, there, I feel like just there, there needs to be more folks who are, you know, getting involved, who are trying to, you know, support in any way they can and try to work you know, to consider, you know, constantly be allies, right? Like to practice allyship and be in solidarity. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that quote from Samira Rice or, you know, Samira, um, not sure where her last name is, but um, just like that quote from his mom, is Saint Rice. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think that's just like really powerful that, you know, they, um, like a lot of these folks, but also a lot of activists too, like, you could say that, you know, they weren't, um, like, they were just, you know, regular folks, but because, you know, these, these things happen to, you know, folks, um, these might happen to them, and they, they live to survive, to, you know, tell their story, and tell their experiences, it can happen to their loved ones, but also just, like, in general, this is happening, you know, to a whole group of people, like, they don't really have a choice, but to, you know, fight, but to, you know, try to um, demand change, um, yeah, and I, yeah, and I do want to make, you know, I think it's so interesting, though, that, like, his, mo- his mom, um, Tamir's Rice's mom was, like, doing, you know, all of this work and organizing. His sister was, too. Um, also, you know, the, you know, for these Black women that were um, victims of police violence that I was talking about, like, their moms um, and their sisters are, you know, doing the work. And so I, it, it's interesting to see also, like, there's a gender gendered aspect to this as well like it's their moms it's their sisters it's you know their their um, female relatives and things um Mm. and so I don't know it just kind of makes me question like is this um like how come it's you know the the women that are also you know being um you know pushed and being you know in the words of Samira Rice like forced into these roles um so yeah how come it's women I mean not not to say that like black men are slacking there are lots of like you know black men that, that are out there doing the work, but it's, it's, it's um, interesting to me that like, this is a, a pattern that I see and also another pattern that is, that is being publicized. It's, it's interesting because like the victims aren't being publicized, right? Black women aren't as victims aren't being publicized. And yet after they, um, you know, after the fact and after what happened, it's like a lot of the media does point to the family members the moms, the sisters, the daughters, you know, whoever. Um, that's, in my opinion, that's what I've seen. So I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I think it's just women in general have this really, um, I think because um, especially black women haven't had like as much political power mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in American society, they get that power through, organi- for, through organizing. Right, um, right, right. Organizing, you know, is a very much a way that that's how they put pressure on institutions mm-hmm. to demand change. So I think that's really an important thing to understand is that because women are the bedrock of communities, especially black women in the black community are definitely are what uphold the community. You know, they're the ones um, I think that know their communities best and know how to best advocate. So I think that's another thing too. I think also feeds into maybe I'm going on, on a limb here, but like mass incarceration and a lot of black men being locked up and not because like I I know like the the narrative of the black family in in the United States is very complex also due to slavery but um I think that a lot of you know black women um have had to you know hold down the front at home and so that requires like you know like organizing and being um Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. anyway I just I think that's a part of it I think that's why the role is pretty gendered but yeah. I think I don't think it's a bad I think it's the role that's been given to them and that um but yeah no I agree I think it's it's a very complex issue but I think that's like something that comes to mind I don't know if I'm going too much on a limb there but no um, I think I think what you're saying about mass incarceration too like that is just another way that um black you know black folks have fallen victim to you know um state and like this the state, right? The state, state violence, you could say too, because you know when you're incarcerated, you're not you're not treated um, in very good ways. So, um, especially for black folks, without their fathers to like yeah. educate them, yeah, to be like, this is how you. Not saying that. I mean, the fact that black people, period, have to be educated on this is really, you know, terrible and awful, and like they like they should just be treated the same. Yeah, but they're not. So that um education and understanding may not be passed down and so like when there are encounters with the police like I, I do think a lot of it rests on the police shoulders like of them not of them pulling a gun instead of just you know like escalating situations and just I mean black folks nine times out of ten are unarmed you know what I mean like it's yeah. it's, it's crazy it's like you just assume they're armed like what like I don't know. It's just really mind-boggling to me. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that, like, you know, this assumption of, like, you know, Black folks being armed and, like, being dangerous, and even in the yeah. cases that they are, like, it's really mostly because they might be suffering from certain mental health issues. Um, not to say mental health, you know, people with mental health issues are violent. It's just, you know, whatever is happening is, is just happening. Like, there needs that mm-hmm. this is stemming from, you know, this, like, going back to what I was talking about, like, with racial otherness, um, this stems from you know, after being dehumanized for so long, and then now during, yeah. the, like, during the reconstruction period, like, with, you know, white rage, and kind of, like, um, legalizing this kind of notion that, like, Black folks are, like, criminals, like, all of them are criminals, and all of them are dangerous, and they're threat to white society, um, like, that, I think, that has literally come from all, like, how many years ago, all the way until now, and that's, like, you know, we were talking about in the last episode, like, implicit bias, like, that is a bias and that is just like you know their jerk reaction that shouldn't even be happening but yeah it does right and I think they've just been conditioned or probably even when they're in training I don't know what is going on in police trainings but I think 
that could also be the case too. Um, mm -hmm. Just like thinking of like, you know, oh, if you see who you're, you know, you might be trained of like who you need to go, you know, um, pull over or do a stop and frisk and, you know, what communities you are patrolling and, and policing. Um, and so all of that really accumulates, I feel like, to just exactly. that like, reaction of pulling out the gun and just shooting it. Yeah, and I think it's just like, to me, like, you know, I I have, um, like, I, I asked one of my friends' dad, who's a cop, I asked her, I was like, mm. so when you're out in the field, right, like, do you pull for the gun first? Like, I literally asked him, he's like, no, like, you're taught to, like, only do the gun if you're, like, feel like your life is threatened. Mm. And I was like, so Black people are threatening to you? And he's like, oh, no. Like, he's like, I think the cops that shoot Black people are stupid. Like, they're not, they don't know, they, it, it's racist and it's dumb. Like, yeah. they, they should know better. Um which I thought was an interesting point of view to have, because I mean, he he worked as like an, and you know, in the field for a long time, but then became a detective. So, um, but I thought that was like an interesting thing because I feel like, in my opinion, to like de-escalate a situation, you wouldn't pull for your your most violent thing in the toolkit. Like, I don't know. Especially most of the time, a lot of these situations are situations that. I find that black folks oftentimes involve themselves because they're helping someone or they're just going about their day. It's just a very like, and then all of a sudden, you know, it leads to their murder, which is really, really crazy. But right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to just yeah. like, yeah, but the, I mean, there's a lot of things. This is of course current and it's happening. So I feel like doing this episode just hopefully can contribute to that and just like raise some points and like raise awareness um especially yeah. to you know this gendered aspect and to consider like intersectionality and like how you understand like who are victims whether you know those folks who actually have been you know murders or who have died in the hands of police but also um you know their surviving family um mm -hmm. so yeah just like um just to kind of you know close off a little um just think about you know research do your research and think about especially with Kimberly Crenshaw what she's doing with the African-American Policy Forum that is a great place to kind of you know begin to um you know think about like what am I what am I going to do in terms of action like how can I actually be a part of this um definitely like look into that and see how you can get involved especially surrounding like donating and like you know, using your money to support um, these organizations and these campaigns, it's definitely super helpful because these are really like grassroots, you know, local, you know, community organizing. Um, they don't have the funding of, you know, this local government. So they definitely yeah. run on donations. So I think that's a great way to kind of begin. Definitely, most definitely, yeah. Um, I think oftentimes, people especially performative activists and like put your money where your mouth is like you don't donate like use your generational wealth especially mm -hmm. to my white folks out there like um use your generational wealth and make future generations better so yeah do better do better you gotta do better um do better okay so i think that's it for our podcast today thank you everyone uh for listening and i hope you have a lovely rest of your morning, day, evening, whatever time of day it may be. Um, yeah, and um, catch you next time. The songs in our episode, Cheeky in our intro and Thinking Free in our outro are by Ketza in the Free Music Archive. 
Keta is licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 Creative Commons International license.